0: Well, during the the 1970s, there was a, a tremendously popular Christian writer by the name of Hal Lindsay. Now, some of you, I'm sure, will remember that name. Others of you, I know, will never have heard of it. But his most popular book went by the title of The Late Great Planet Earth. And it sold literally millions of copies. And what Hal Lindsay did in this book is that he took the events depicted in books of the Bible, like Daniel that we're looking at this morning and Revelation, and he took the the numbers, the years, the, the symbolism used in these kind of books, eh? and he looked at these in the light of events that were going on in the world at that time, and then putting all of this together, he t- came to the conclusion that the days that he was living in then were the end times. And he gave a pretty firm timetable as to what he expected and when he expected things to happen and the fact that he expected Christ to return before the year 2000. Well, in April 1977, Harold Lindsay was interviewed in the magazine Christianity Today by Ward Gask, and this is how the interview went. But what if you're wrong, asked Gask, and Lindsay replied... Well, there's just a split seconds difference between being a hero and a zero. I didn't ask to be a hero, but I guess I've become one in the Christian community, so I accept it. But if I'm wrong about this, I guess I'll become a zero. Well, standing here in 2017... I wouldn't want to be that harsh in my judgment of Hal Lindsay because no one is a zero. Every man and every woman is precious in God's sight. But I do believe that he was, and he still is, by the way, guilty of seriously mishandling the word of God. For how can it ever be right to come up with some kind of precise timetable of the end when Jesus himself said... In Mark 12, sorry, 13, 32. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So to my mind, someone like Hal Lindsay is mishandling the Word of God, misleading the people of God, and by so doing undermining the authority of God's word in the world. Rather, the way that that I believe that we should handle and should understand books like Daniel and like Revelation is by remembering first and foremost that these books were written to a particular people at a particular point in history. So you see, what we have here in these latter chapters of Daniel is to begin with, and this is where we begin, with prophecy related to their time and to their situation. Often expressed in language and symbols that are strange to us, but that would be readily understood at that time. And then within these symbols, within this prophecy, are to be found principles Principles that are relevant for all times and certainly are relevant in terms of what we can expect to see happening at the very end of time. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, actually from Daniel chapter 8, which is one of the, the clearest prophecies in the Bible, indeed from verse 15 on us. Ali pointed out about chapter 7 as well. Took away all my thunder. Um, from, from, you know The prophecies actually explained there. For first of all, from verse 3 of chapter 8, we read about a ram with two horns who travels westward, southward, travels to the north, overcoming against, dominating everything that comes in its path. This stands for the Persian Empire. Then there is the goat, in verse five: the goat with one prominent horn, who makes a, a lightning charge and defeats the ram, but breaking, though, his own horn in the process. Now this, I believe, stands for the Greek Alexander the Great, who won victory over victory over the Persians, from verse uh, sorry, from, from 3,34 BC on and always attacked with incredible speed, devastating speed, found in his own empire. But then you see in 325 BC, worn out, Alexander collapsed. The horn was broken. And then we find in verse 8 that where this horn was broken, that four prominent horns grow in its place. Well, what do you know? four of Alexander's generals came to power following his death in his place and they founded four Greek kingdoms. Out of one of these four horns, though, comes a little horn in verse 9. Little, because this is a man about whom there is no touch of greatness about him. Because this is a proud little king whose weapons, verse 25, are cunning deceit but this little king is the one who will do the greatest damage to the people of God who will attack truth it says in verse 12 who will martyr God's people verse 10 who will outlaw worship who will desecrate the sanctuary verse 13 who basically will attack God himself the prince of the host Now you see, a little Greek king, answering just this description, doing just exactly what is said here, came to power in Palestine in 170 BC. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he came to power in 170 BC, approximately 400 years after this book of Daniel was written. So you see that this prophecy then was given to the people of God here to let them know what lay ahead of them in the relatively near future and to let them know, to reassure them that God had his sovereign hand on the situation. Verse 25 tells us, he will be destroyed but not by human hands which in fact happened to Antiochus for six and a half years after he began to persecute the Jews, which corresponds approximately to the 2,300 days verse 14 said that this would go on. Well, suddenly and unexpectedly Antiochus died. So this then was a prophecy for the people of God at the time that the book of Daniel was written. But But verse 17 of chapter 8 makes it clear there that this vision also reaches beyond the situation of the people there. And it reaches to the end of time because it says there, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Now as we look at what the Bible says about the end of time, here in Daniel and in other places like Revelation, well, it's pretty clear just in what way this is a vision of the end. In that, Antiochus is a forerunner of the Antichrist. He was a forerunner of that last great final embodiment of evil among mankind. The one who will come and lead mankind into a final climactic rebellion Against God. Yes and also. In that his fate. Is a forerunner. Of what will be the fate. Of the Antichrist. That is defeated. By the almighty power. Of a sovereign God. You see Antiochus. Before the coming. Of the Antichrist. He was possessed by what 1 John 4.3 calls. The spirit. Of the Antichrist. He was used then in his time by the evil one as a particular focus for aggression against God, against good, against the people of God, against the things of God in his time. Here, though, is how this kind of thing has been at times misinterpreted. And that is in that throughout the history of the church, there have been times when the label the Antichrist has been attached to a dominant figure in that particular period of history. Some thought that that various Roman emperors were the Antichrist. During the time of the Reformation, it was widely accepted uh, by the, the Reformers that the Pope was the Antichrist. Napoleon in his time was seen as the Antichrist. In more recent days, Hitler, Mussolini were viewed by some as the Antichrist. Bringing things even more up to date, there were those who saw the Ayatollah hominy, who saw Saddam Hussein in his time as the Antichrist. And so people, people like, people similar to Hal Lindsey, begin to make precise predictions that this is the day, the end has come. But again, you see, Jesus tells us that we will never know when the end has come until it's here. And that you see, we don't know how bad the spirit of Antichrist has to get before the Antichrist is among us. So then, we should always live then. In expectation of the end. We should always make sure that we're living in such a way as to be ready today for the end. But I don't believe that God wants us to get involved in pointless, in-depth speculation. But do you see how all this fits in with what we said earlier? In, the, in this prophecy in Daniel chapter in Daniel chapter 8 we do find prophecy that first of all related to their time and to their situation. But that this also contains principles, that this contains teaching that is not only relevant for all times about the spirit of Antichrist, that spirit which has manifested itself in men and women throughout history, but that within this also there are principles and teaching about the end of time and about the Antichrist who will appear then. Well, what I want to go on and and do with you now is is from Daniel chapter 7, from the vision we find there, just to go on and, and draw out and apply two more principles that I think contain really the heart of what is taught in the rest of this book. That's what the rest of this book goes on to develop and apply. So we're going to draw this series on Daniel to a close today because much of the rest of the book is really just an underlying underlining, if you like, and elaborating of the principles we find here, of these two principles. It's basically variations on a theme. But remember again, just before we go into this, that this teaching is given through an exile, through Daniel, given to a people who are suffering and discouraged, people who are living in a situation where faith was under attack, with the only prospect being of yet more to come. So in that context then, what two principles does Daniel share with his people via this vision? First of all, I believe that evil has its day. Evil has its day. For while some have centred on certain features here, you know, notably the, the most common has been the focused on the, the dominant beast with the ten horns, with one horn appearing, and, and, and that becoming the main focus. And people throughout time have maybe seen this as being you know, this one <laughs> ultimate domination, one world focus, and they've applied it to different things. I mentioned earlier, kings of the, the Greek Empire. And then there was also times puppet kings set up by Napoleon. They've been seen as the ten and him as the one. The UN has been seen at times as this beast. The European community, where it only had 10 members, is commonly seen as this beast. And I don't want to frighten you, but do you know that South Lanarkshire Council has 10 departments? (laughs) That is a joke. For all who work there, that is a joke. Well, okay, I I know and I accept, I'm sure that one of the, the features of the time of Antichrist will be some kind of world domination. But you see, trying to fit what's going on in our world today into the kind of symbolism that we can find here, that kind of speculation is, I think, misleading again. It can be dangerous, and ultimately, it's actually pointless to speculate in this way. Because Antichrist will be too subtle too deceitful to be recognized by us clearly until it's too late, if at all. No, rather, what this, this vision, I believe, is about, what God was trying to communicate to the people then is how in that day, and how, and this is relevant to us, how throughout human history, right up to the last day and climaxing at the last day, how they, how we, can expect to experience in our lives the power and impact of evil. So then in these verses here on more than one occasion, we find wings mentioned. I believe this is trying to convey to us the swiftness of evil. It's trying to open our eyes to how evil can hit us unexpectedly and ruthlessly right out of the blue and how therefore we should always Be on our guard and be prepared for it. The bear with the three ribs within its teeth. This is about the violence of evil. The violence with which evil customarily operates. And the evil that always stands at the heart of violence. The four heads is suggestive of evil's cunning. Of the Deceitful, subtle, hidden ways in which evil can work if necessary. And the beast with its large iron teeth, the beast with its ten horns, what this is intended to communicate to us is the power of evil, the extraordinary power of evil. The horn, that single horn, that uproots three others, that speaks boastfully. This is about pride about the fact that evil so often expresses itself in pride and that it gains access to our lives by way of our pride. You see, this is what evil is like. This is how evil works in our world throughout history. It's swift, violent, powerful, ruthless, cunning and proud. And this is the ever-present reality of the world we live in. So I want to ask you why is it then that so many Christians today seem to think that if we faithfully follow the Lord, even if we simply have faith, that that's enough? That this should then mean that life in this world should go well for us, that we should basically be wealthy, healthy, happy, etc. To the extent that if things don't work out like this, then many of us seem to think that either God has let us down or that we must have done something terrible to offend Him because life shouldn't be this way. But you know, not too long ago, Kayla Mueller, an American Christian involved in aid work in Syria, she was captured there by IS. It happened in 2013. And for 18 months... She was treated terribly. She was tortured, abused. She was forced to become one of the wives of the leader of ISIS. But she held on to her faith. She kept faithful. And then she was killed. Now we're maybe inclined to think that, you know, something must have gone wrong here. That this is unusual, this is wrong. That things like this just shouldn't happen to a faithful Christian. If that's what you're thinking, let me tell you what's unusual. The situation we are living in today as Christians in this country, that's unusual. The fact that we get things so easy, that's What's unusual? But you know, it hasn't always been so. I'll look back in the history books, we'll soon convince you of that, and it certainly isn't so in many other parts of the world today. We heard a little bit of that last week from Release International, and I'm sure most of you have heard the, the famous statistic that there were actually more martyrs last century for the sake of Jesus Christ than in the rest of the history of the church put together. And that's happening. That's still going on right now as we meet here in Asia, the Far East, the Middle East, in Africa, South America. Right now, Christians are suffering (coughs) and are dying for Jesus Christ. That's the reality. The forces of evil hit hard at the people of God. That's What's normal, and you know, we need to waken up to that because even now, even in our pampered society, still occasionally the forces of evil hit at us, but you see, too often taken by surprise by this. We we buckle, if not crumble, but we do know, we do need to know what the reality is here, and we need to be ready to face up to it, because things in this country. Won't, cannot, and I believe the signs are already around us. Cannot stay as they are. Before the end. And certainly as the end approaches. The forces of evil will take off their kid gloves in our country. In their opposition to the church. We need to be aware of that. We need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared. So evil then has its day, will have its day. That's one spiritual principle, one spiritual truth that I believe is shared with us here through Daniel's vision. What a comfort then is the other principle. What a comfort is the other great truth that he goes on to lay out for us here. That is that God has overcome. Evil has its day, but God has and will overcome. See what it says in verse 9. After telling us about these great beasts that represent that force of evil. See what it says. It says, as I look, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. You see, in the midst of the worst that evil can do. In the midst of the chaos that evil brings, God takes his seat. As the judge, as the sovereign Lord over all creation. The message then, to God's people in Daniel's time, to God's people throughout history and to the very end of time. The message is, don't give in. Don't lose heart. God is in control. God is going to see justice done. That day is coming. That day is coming. God's day is coming soon. And then we're reminded in the following verses of something of the the nature of the God that we're called to trust in as an encouragement to keep faith and hold on. We're told that his clothing was as white as wool The hair of his head as white, sorry, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head as white as wool. Now, incidentally here, by the way, isn't it good for some of us to see that that white hair, that gray hair in the Bible is actually a badge of honor? Brilliant. But what white reminds us of, though, what it's designed to remind us of, is of the, the purity of God. It's designed to remind us that our God is a holy God, that he is a God who must oppose evil. Then another powerful picture here is a fire. His throne was flaming with fire. A river of fire was flowing out, coming out from before him. Now you see, fire in the Bible is a symbol of God's power. For in Exodus 3, God revealed his power and his glory to Moses by coming to him in a burning bush. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah called upon God to demonstrate his power and so an all-consuming fire came upon the altar. We could go on. Fire in the Bible is a symbol of the power of God. And what this is saying to us, is that the God who opposes evil also has the power to overcome evil. And this is underlined here in in verse 11 by what it says about the beast being slain, its body being destroyed and thrown into the fire. But how, though, does all this tie in? How does it all tie in? What it says here about the beast being destroyed. Even more what the Bible teaches us about the victory of God over the forces of evil at the cross. That there God broke the power of evil at that cross and one day he will wipe evil from the face of the earth. How does this tie in with the very real power that evil has now in our world? Well, you know, I think that the the best insight the Bible gives us into the dynamics of what's actually going on here, we find it in Revelation 12, verse 12, where it says, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. You see, because of the victory of Jesus on the cross, the power of Satan is broken. He is cast out of heaven and so because of that, the heavens rejoice. But because God in love holds back his hand from final judgment, because he does that to give men and women an opportunity to repent, well so Satan now comes down to earth to do his worst. Yes, we now on earth, we suffer at the hands of an enraged, spiteful and vicious, but ultimately defeated enemy. Do you see the the encouragement, the kind of, of exhortation that there is here though? You know, evil has power on this earth. That's true. The forces of evil want to strike at us as hard as they can, and that's true as well. But God has broken the power of evil. And God, if we're alert and aware, and if we're ready to turn to him, ready to seek him, he can give us the victory over evil, no matter what evil throws our way, in that he can enable us to stand up When the forces of evil are trying to drive us down in the dirt. He can enable us to stand for him and whatever his will is, he can enable us by the way we live to glorify him in the here and now. And then one day, one day, God's going to wrap it all up. He only hesitates, he only holds back again because of his love for mankind to give more and more a chance to repent because he wants more and more to come into his kingdom. That's why God doesn't hold back because he's in some way afraid of Satan. He doesn't hold back because their powers are are almost equal and he's afraid that Satan might in some way get the upper hand. No, it's not that. God's power is sovereign. Satan is defeated. He is overwhelmed. God only holds back in our day because of love. But you know, one day, he's not going to hold back anymore. One day, the Jesus who first came as Savior, one day is going to return to this earth as judge. And then that day, all wrongs will be put right. On that day, righteousness and goodness and love and justice will reign and be seen to reign on this earth. And we're told here finally that that day is coming. Verse 13. The day is coming when the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. That day is coming And May that day be soon. And may each one of God's people here be prepared, be ready, be right at heart on the day that he comes to us. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the truth of your word, for what it says to us and speaks to us of how you're at work in our world today, how your hand is upon our lives and how one day, And may that day be soon. One day this world is going to be put right. One day every man and every woman is going to be forced to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Lord, may we bow the knee to him willingly now. May we, by faith, take hold of the glorious future that God has for his people. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.